some verses for you from 2 Timothy chapter 4. verse 6 through verse 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And from hymn 81, the uh, last part of that hymn, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is for him. was Sunday, September 13, 1936, in Cincinnati, Ohio, and worship for a small number of people that morning took place in the downtown YMCA auditorium. The sermon was delivered by a man five feet eight inches tall whose heavy-jowled voice carried some indications of his southern roots. The man was J. Gresham Machen. He preached again that evening at the Walnut Walnut Hills Baptist Church in a service sponsored by the local congregation of the newly formed Presbyterian Church of America the original PCA. The pastor of that congregation was Everett C. DeVelde. The next day, the Presbytery of Ohio of the PCA was organized in the Christian Reformed Church building nearby. The original membership of this presbytery consisted of <coughs> Carl Alfelt of Indianapolis, Mr. DeVelde of Cincinnati, Thomas Mitchell of Mineral Ridge, Ohio, and J. Lyle Shaw of Cleveland. Congregations were formed in Indianapolis, Cincinnati, Youngstown, and Marion, Ohio, Ushell, Kentucky, with a mission work in Newport, Kentucky. If these cities and towns fail to register in your minds as sites of OP congregations today, the reason for this is that there haven't been OP congregations in these places for 38 years or better. 
In fact, when four churches of western Pennsylvania were made part of the Presbytery of Ohio in 1951, there was only one remaining Ohio congregation, Trinity, OPC in Cincinnati, and that congregation was dissolved the following year. Thus, the Presbytery of Ohio had no churches in Ohio, a situation that was not reversed for 11 years when a congregation developed in Marietta, Ohio, but that congregation was also ill-fated and did not survive. (laughs) Besides the obvious irony of the situation, Surely a deep sense of sadness settles in upon anyone who reviews the formative years of the Presbytery of Ohio or the formative years of the OPC, for that matter. Undoubtedly, our sadness hardly compares to the anguish and grief experienced by the original champions for Protestant orthodoxy and the Reformed faith around whom that presbytery and this church were organized. Although extreme, the circumstances seen in that presbytery repeated themselves throughout the length and breadth of the church. In those early days, we hear about congregations from such places as Barrington, Camden, East Orange, New Jersey. We hear about congregations in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Aurora, Nebraska, We hear about Redeemer Church, Gethsemane Church in Philadelphia, congregations in Quarryville, West Pittstown, and Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, churches in Delaware, long gone, Colorado, the Dakotas, and closer to things here, we hear about works in Hollywood and Santa Ana. Once the OPC lost an entire presbytery, the presbytery of Chicago, a prominent member of that presbytery was J. Oliver Buswell, president of Wheaton College. And here in California, a presbytery meeting witnessed the majority of the presbyters not only leaving the meeting, but leaving the church. In more recent days, the OPC has had to face continuing pressure from the dissolution and departure of congregations and the departure of its membership and ministers. For example, 
Of the 20 works listed for the Presbytery of the South in the 1986 semicentennial volume, You won't want to be without one. <laughs> or two. <clears throat> or four. <laughs> of the 20 works listed for the Presbytery of the South in, in the semicentennial volume, only seven remain in the OPC today. When faced with these st statistics and over the last Two years to watch again a number break ranks can leave us reeling if not out and out disoriented. And we do well to remind ourselves of our forefathers in the church and the circumstances that they faced. I might say that uh, I believe it accurate that those who weathered the storms, those who stayed on and fought on, were not infected by an indulgent and sinful self-pity. They might well be contrasted with some of us. But to remind you of some of the circumstances that the original stalwarts faced, let me read you a portion that, uh, from our semicentennial volume. Only Second Parish in Portland, Maine, and the congregation in Leith North Dakota retained their buildings after litigation. Strangely, Leith later lost its property through a technicality and was forced to repurchase it. A few congregations were able to hold on to their buildings because the established church had no use for them. Despite these exceptions, the new church had become a Presbyterian anomaly. There's one of those words again. It didn't fit the mold, in other words. Not what you would have expected. Without property and franchise, the new church lacked the ingredients by which many defined a church as legitimate. Are you with me there? Okay. Without property and franchise connections to the culture, the society as a whole, the new church lacked the ingredients by which many define a church as legitimate. Machen himself, immediately after the new church's formulation, perceived this difficulty, he addressed it forthrightly. Buildings are fine, he said, but not essential. Actually, property can be a snare. 
in his message, the Church of God, at the close of the first assembly of the new church, he stated, how often in these days when men put church buildings on one side and Christ on the other, do they choose the building and let Christ go? The rule, not the exception for OPs, has been a choice for Christ in which they have had to let a great deal go. Congregation after congregation began in the severest situation. Testimonies recorded stand like booze at the Feast of Tabernacles and similarly as a sobering reminder of O.P. origins. Churches first gathered in tents, bars, barracks, funeral homes, fire halls, community buildings, haylofts, storefronts, I love this one, chinchilla farms, kennels, motels, warehouses, basements, showrooms, synagogues, Seventh-day Adventist buildings, even Masonic lodges and the former headquarters of a local chapter of the KKK. <laughs> well, <laughs> the American Legion Hall, this bad one. To be sure, these men who went through the experiences that we've described suffered greatly. There is the record that comes to us from Robert Marsden a little bit later on than those formative years. He talks about going around to the struggling home mission works. He recalls visiting one omissions congregation where he was entertained by the pastor and his wife. Marsden wrote, I was served potatoes for breakfast, potatoes for lunch, and potatoes for dinner, and only potatoes, because that's all they had. These men suffered from the defections from the ministerial ranks. They watched congregations form. They watched some of them go. They endured the wranglings within the congregations, within the presbyteries, and at General Assembly. And indeed, these wranglings took their toll upon them. But these leaders had been seized by a vision for God and for the Reformed faith, and they were a particularly resilient lot. 
Something worked in them despite the distances they had to travel for Presbytery. You've heard the stories, I'm sure. Despite the severe strain from their ministries, despite the meager fruit from their gargantuan efforts, despite even the poverty they endured. In the best of them, there burned a radical passion, a remarkably fresh love for God, for their Savior, for His Church, and for the Scriptures. A particular situation may beat them. They may have had to throw up their hands, throw in the towel, move on. But in the end, nothing could diminish their zeal. I've personally, personally witnessed the radical passion of which I have spoken. It was evident in those original members of the Presbytery of Ohio and still burned in Everett DeVelde, who in his 81st year rose to his feet at the 53rd General Assembly to express his love for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and his prayer that she might continue. Some said it was his finest hour. I saw it in Carl Offelt, whose message entitled, Who is Sufficient for These Things, delivered at Westminster Seminary during my middler year, left a deep impression upon me. And I've read about it in the lights of J. Lyle Shaw, a remarkable man who almost single-handedly cared for the poor in poverty-stricken, flood-ridden Newport, Kentucky, and who fought for a reformed and responsible approach to the poor against a widening conspiracy of liberal clergymen and politicians until he had to close Trinity Chapel in 1951. But the radical passion we observe in these men should not surprise us. In fact, it should be the radical passion that marks all true servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. It should be the hallmark of those who claim him and serve him. And who better than the ministers of the Reformed faith? And I do not hesitate to add, the ministers of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church ought to be able to identify with the words of the Apostle Paul. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power might be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Here is Paul's doctrine of grace wonderfully expressed in his view of the ministry in which he also must be understood as driven by the radical passion.
and nothing less than this is discernible in J. Gresson Major. It might have been misunderstood as it was by his detractors or even someone like Pearl Buck who could only say this about it. There was a power in him which was positive in its very negations. Machen had a friend, one who respected him by the name of David DeForest Burrell. And he says it much better. He wrote after Machen's death that here was, quote, a life that had but one love, one consuming purpose, to honor and glorify Jesus Christ in his church. I like the way he put that. To glorify Jesus Christ in his church. And Burrell saw the matter in perspective. It was precisely through the tragedy, the extreme embarrassment, the leveling humiliations that the magnificence of that radical passion appeared. Burrell concluded his eulogy with these words. He died, literally burned out by that single passion. With all my heart I honor him more than I sorrow over his departure, do I grieve over the fact that he was so misunderstood, so misrepresented. Like his dear Lord, he received not honor from men, but if his heart had been laid bare, we would have seen there Jesus Christ and him alone enthroned. Machen, I am certain, was not aware at the outset of things of the costliness of his radical passion. During the early 20s, he had enjoyed a great deal of popularity. He was riding high. He was comparable to what we have nowadays in the evangelical celebrity a sought-after speaker, venerated leader of the conservative cause. But the first tremor, the first tremor, and no small tremor it was, hit in the spring of 1926. He had been nominated by the board at Princeton Seminary for a full professorship and for the, for the chair of apologetics. The recommendation was put, forward, put before the General Assembly. It had to pass upon this recommendation. And after some displays of acrimony by Machen's opponents, the whole matter was laid aside in the interests of a full-scale investigation into the seminary. Now, what was especially humiliating in this experience was not the fact that Machen had been attacked, but that the General Assembly that year met in Baltimore. 
Machen's hometown. He had been openly vilified in clear view of the city that claimed him as its own. In comments that we recorded in the press, he was charged with, quote, temperamental idiosyncrasies, unquote. Hampered by, quote, serious limitations, unquote. Charles Erdman, his colleague at Princeton, saw him as thoroughly controversial. And J. Ross Stevenson, president of Princeton, saw him as the spokesman at the seminary for a view of intolerance that forbade even many from within the PCUSA from being welcomed on the campus. As some of you know, this assault led Machen to withdraw his name for consideration of that position at Princeton. The aftermath led to the reorganization of Princeton in 1929, a reorganization that included the placement of those who had signed the Auburn Affirmation to the board. Of course, Machen left Princeton and in 1929 founded Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. The next humiliation by which Machen's radical passion would be tested was his trial. For those of you unfamiliar with the facts of that ordeal, I give them to you here in brief. 1932 saw the publication of a book entitled Rethinking Missions, a book embarrassing to biblical evangelism. But that book alerted many in the PCUSA to the inroads liberalism had made in the mission enterprise of that denomination. Machen overtured the 1933 General Assembly to remedy the situation. The Assembly refused to take action. Machen and others then organized the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions. In 1934, the General Assembly took swift action, ordering all members of the new Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions to resign under penalty of church discipline. In the GA's judgment, failure to promote the officially authorized missionary program of the church placed one in the same position as one who refused to participate in the Lord's Supper. Machen said he must obey God rather than men and refused to submit to what he considered an attack upon the Presbyterian principles of liberty of conscience and biblical obedience. 1935 brought the courts of the presbyteries into full operation. Machen was found guilty in one of the most farcical trials of church history. His defense was not even able, allowed, to present Machen's defense. The issue was administrative uniformity and compliance. Machen wished to argue the case on the basis of doctrine, and he was effectively ruled out of order. 
His appeal ran its course in the 1936 General Assembly in Syracuse, New York. He and seven others were defrocked by that assembly, and on June 11th of that year, they, they, they aided in organizing the Presbyterian Church of America, which would become the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Now, the depths of this particular humiliation ordinarily are not perceived. This humiliation is not simply a matter of Mason being barred from the church he loved and served. In actual fact, this humiliation meant for Mason a social excommunication. The extremes of this excommunication could be seen only in a figure like me. He was born and bred the fair-haired child of an American aristocracy. He came from one of the best families in Baltimore. Many of the leading figures in our culture and society were regularly guests in his home. He was schooled at Johns Hopkins University when that university was the premier institution in this country. He had known life at its best. But now he was disenfranchised. The emerging American establishment, of which the broad church was an essential and integral part, closed its door against him. The significance of this has hardly been assessed. <clears throat> I, for one, believe it to be a blessing, ultimately, a severe mercy that has provided the Presbyterian enterprise in the OPC the opportunity to consider transcending the establishmentarian and nationalistic identity that has plagued it since its inception. Nation's humiliation in this regard accounts for the mysterious and misunderstood character of the OPC. He is not a national church. He is not even an American church. He has been rejected. She has been kicked out. Her interests now lie. final ordeal for Nation was the event surrounding his death. In November 1936, <coughs> Machen's leadership 
in the independent board of Presbyterian Foreign Missions was called into question. One person was overheard saying, this fellow nation is getting too much power. But Machen's conviction was, now that a true Presbyterian church existed, what need was there for the continuance of the independent board? Rather, the mission enterprise should be brought into a proper ecclesiastical frame. Machen, however, was opposed by Carl McIntyre and others. And after a close vote, in fact, a vote which had the majority of one, Machen was replaced as president of the board. And his leadership had effectively come to an end. It is reported now that the deciding vote was cast by none other than H. McAllister Griffith, the very man who had served as counsel to Machen in his church trial, who had served as editor of the Presbyterian Guardian, who was nothing less than Machen's right-hand man, but had left him in the summer of 36 in moral and financial disgrace. According to later sworn affidavits from his family, Machen's rejection within the independent board by those he most trusted was the cruelest cut of all. His annual Christmas visit to Baltimore found him pensive and somewhat withdrawn. His sister-in-law credited his melancholy with aggravating an already bad cold he had carried with him from Philadelphia. Actually, she wrote down his words to her in a telephone conversation after he had failed in his bid to be re-elected as the president of the independent board. This is what she recalls of the conversation. Machen said, they kicked me out as president. It's the hardest blow I've had yet. I'm done for now. I feel I've been driven to the final humiliation of my life. I actually pleaded for myself, pleaded that I be returned to office. My back was against the wall, and the whole life of the board was at stake. And I've loved it so, and now it's gone, absolutely wrecked, lost to everything it has stood for, everything I stand for, and the man who's, men who stand with me. Now everything is in the hands of men who haven't the slightest notion of the issues at stake. Everything I've worked for, loved and suffered for has been kicked out too. I feel it's the end for me. This time they've finished me. Now 
But the radical passion, even in this deepest distress, would not succumb. So after Christmas with his family, he boarded a train for Bismarck, North Dakota. He arrived on Tuesday, December 29th. He had not been well on the train. Nevertheless, when he met the Reverend Sam Allen in the Patterson Hotel, he was ready to go to work. Sam suggested that they drive to Leith, 75 miles away, where Machen could meet his congregation. <clears throat> Without hesitation, off they went into the 20 below Dakota winter. The trip was obviously painful for Machen. That afternoon he met with a very small group at the Leith Church. The size of the gathering, however, didn't affect him. The radical passion blazed. The size of the gathering was superseded in his estimation by waiting. Still, <clears throat> the talks weakened him and left him in the throes of a pleurisy attack. But another meeting was scheduled for Bismarck at 8.30 that evening, so back to the city he and Sam went. The trip was desperate. Sam actually thought Machen would die in the car. So severe was his suffering that Machen said, I can't die now. I have so much work to do. They arrived in Bismarck at 7.15. A doctor was called who taped Machen's chest to relieve the pain. He felt a little better and went to the meeting. He performed so well that no one was aware of his condition. He then spent a sleepless night in great pain, and in the morning the doctor demanded that he get to the hospital. Sam was off to Leith again for the evening Bible class and left a local evangelical pastor to check in on Machen. <clears throat> but Machen had another guest, a local Auburn affirmationist who thought it the height of charity to pay Dr. Machen a call. After the man left, the nurses found Machen extremely agitated, pacing his room, still in the battle. Despite the seriousness of his condition, the fight continued. Even from his bed, he continued to organize his affairs, sending memos to Philadelphia and his family, even paying bills for the Presbyterian Garden. By Thursday morning, he was diagnosed as having pneumonia. His breathing came hard. Sam visited only briefly that day to allow him to rest. That night, Machen told him he thought he had already died. It was glorious. It was glorious, he said. The conversation ended as Machen asked, Sam, isn't the reform thing? New Year's Eve, death was creeping in, but 
the radical fashion continued. The next day, Friday, January 1st, 1937, found Machen very low. His lungs were closing. And when he would awake, he was delirious and often irrational. Sam found him fighting to breathe about mid-afternoon. His eyes opened briefly. I'm only just about conscious, Sam. Just about conscious. Later that afternoon, he seemed to improve a little and assured Sam everything was all right. But Sam knew that he had only a small part of his left lung cleared. And at 7.45, at the very time his brother Arthur and his sister-in-law Helen arrived at the Bismarck train station, Jay Gresson died. A nurse took down his last words, a message to John Murray. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope. Here is the crown. Here is the crown of that radical passion which we have been given. In the halls of insufferable humiliation, beyond the accretion of power, prestige and position, above the wonders of culture, civilization, and the world of man's achievements, and through the valley of death, that message resounds. Not complaint, but thanks. Not the boast, but grace. Not the man, but Christ. Not this world, but the next. It is proved that the stuff Machen lived by, he died by. And the radical passion itself Never falter. And here is the thing. Even our book. But thinking once more about the Presbyteries and their struggles, the church, as she has struggled, our heritage is as we have described it here. At our heart must be that radical passion that in the end is fully cognizant, that even the passion is the work of grace in the hearts of the undeserving. Our life is driven by the Christ who is for us and the Christ who is in us. Indeed, awaiting us is the prospect of a conformity to our Savior that actually includes death itself. No less in keeping with the wonderful promise of God's Word and our precious Reformed faith is the prospect of enjoying, of enjoying God forever. Despite the abuse, the rejection, the lack of response, the new funds, the strains of illness, 
congregational presbyterial distress despite the ridiculous, almost ridiculous beginnings, the cultural isolation, cultural isolation, or what the world and the church judges, the foolhardiness of Machen and those who follow him. We know that there is laid up for us a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to us on that day, and not only to us, but also to all who have loved his appearance. The story of the 30s is not complete without speaking of the humiliations that came rather quickly for the young church. There was the matter of the schism of 1937 and the departure of those who then organized the Bible Presbyterian Church. I think that you have in mind the issues that led to that schism. Let me place those in front of you once again. According to R.B. Kaiser, in a letter dated April 4, 1938, to Henry Court, one of the principal reasons for that schism was the sermon that Machen preached at the Second General Assembly of the OPC the Sermon on Constraining Love, in which Machen spoke very forthrightly and without compromise about the limited atonement. R.B. Kuyper contends that the issue, at least in part, was Armenian. From there, we went on to other concerns those who eventually formulated the Bible Presbyterian Synod were insisting upon a premillennialist for the church. They were insisting upon a position that would bind the church in terms of its conscience with regard to the beverage use of alcohol, a position of total absence. And also, those who were committed to what became the Bible Presbyterian cause were likewise committed to the cause of independence, as that was expressed in the Independent Board for Presbyterian Transmission. But there's another issue that is often overlooked, and it is this. When Alan McRae left Westminster Seminary, he being a spokesman for the Bible Presbyterian, he said that the church and the seminary had fallen into the hands of a small alien group that did not understand and would not identify itself with American Presbyterian. In other words, Westminster was unknown. And what was taking shape in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, in McCray's estimation and in the estimation of others, was un American. And you know, 
blood. Lecrae had in mind the influence of people like Cornelius Van Phillips. 